Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, April 27th, and today I'll be speaking with Dylan Byers about his deep reporting on the sudden demise of CNN Plus and where all of their hosts suddenly need a job might land inside the network. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Wednesday to the Puck Universe. I am joined today by Dylan Byers, who's back from Italy. And before we get into media stuff, which is your expertise, you and I have traded texts over the years about cocktails. You're a cocktail savant. What's the best thing you drank when you were in Italy? Or was it just wine? No, I mean, my the good news about being in Italy is my my favorite cocktail is the Negroni. Which is like really hard to screw up because it's just equal ratio across the board. I mean, you can toy with that. I went to cocktail bars that had all sorts of fancy international cocktails, but I I stuck to the Negroni the entire time. That's a smart move. That's a smart move to go all in on one. Well, we can text offline about some liqueurs to buy. Hey, we had John on Media Monday and John's been holding it down on media stuff without you. And we talked briefly with him about the decision to shut down CNN Plus, what it says mm-hmm. about CNN, what it says about Warner Brothers Discovery, what it says about the future of the streaming universe. But you've been really leading the charge on a lot of this reporting. How pissed were the honchos at Warner Brothers Discovery that CNN Plus launched before they were even able to take over the company? Uh, there are actually two answers to that question. One is um, very, insofar as... It's like, look, we agreed to a deal in May of 2021. And over the course of the following year, we made it very clear that we believe in a single streaming service strategy and that we don't like the idea of having a lot of little niche streaming services. And as time went on, they made that sort of more and more clear in the press when David Zaslav gave interviews and... There were even conversations that without running afoul of the legal restrictions, the leadership intimated, we have questions about this strategy. We have concerns about this strategy. And the fact that Jason Kylar, not only was CNN not going to be his to deal with at the close of the merger, but he wasn't even going to be at AT AT&T anymore. Uh They had real frustrations that he just charged ahead with his vision for what should happen and didn't just wait a little bit longer for the deal to close so that the new ownership can make the decision. Those frustrations were real. Now, on the other hand, there is a way in which this somewhat benefits Discovery because this thing gets to launch. You get to see what it looks like for two to three weeks. 
And you have every reason to come in and shut it down because you never wanted it anyway. You've made that much clear. And now you've actually had a chance to see how the thing is performing, which bears out your thesis that this isn't something you should do. So in a way, if, if David Zaslav is coming into this and immediately needs to identify $3 billion in cost savings, here is the 10th of that, at least, that he can cut right away. And it's not his fault. It's not the new head of CNN, Chris Lick's fault. It's Jason Kyler's fault and Jeff Zucker's fault. And they never should have done it anyway. And we're here to clean it up. Now, the problem with that and the thing that makes it thorny is that you've got all of these people and these talents you've hired and this staff you've hired who now you have to figure out what to do with, which is a disaster. Right. And then on top of it, you've got all these people who were like, was, was it not enough that we had to go through the month of chaos following Jeff Zucker's ouster? Now we have to have this other massive <laughs> embarrassment on our hands that was a waste of everybody's time. What, so what happens to, like CNN put out this statement that, you know, some of their talent will find shows at, you know, other CNN or Warner properties? Like, what, is, <laughs> yeah. what does that mean? Like, what are they going to do with these folks? Sure, I, it, it's different for everybody, right? If you're Chris Wallace, you're in talks right now about some sort of show that will exist on the traditional CNN, as we've always known it the linear channel. If you're Casey Hunt, you can see easily how she might find a role somewhere in daytime or on the weekends. If you're Allison Roman and you've got a cooking show, maybe there's a different channel at the Warner Media Discovery at, at, at you know, Empire where that makes more sense. Now, did you necessarily, when you signed up to join CNN Plus in this sort of bold new endeavor, did you really just want to land at like whatever Discovery's cooking show happens to be? Probably not. So I think there are just like a lot of negotiations that have to happen there. But, you know, there are ripple effects across the board here because so you've got all of this staff that's been brought on and they're being told, look, you guys can reapply for different jobs at CNN. That's just disruptive for everybody at CNN mm-hmm. who, you know, now is being asked to fill those jobs. I mean, it's just, it's not pleasant for anybody. But look, I think... I can see Chris Wallace ending up at CNN. I can see Audie Cornish ending up at CNN. Casey Hunt again ending up at CNN. And and they'll figure out what to do with all of these people and 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 everyone will be fine and everyone will get some money. Which brings me to my next question, which is CNN is now under new leadership. Chris Licht will be taking over. You know, it's pretty clear that he wouldn't have been hired for the role if he didn't vibe with Zaslov on what CNN is and what it should be moving forward. Yeah. Part of that is, I've heard this through the grapevine, like they, like he's not a big fan of the opinion driven programming. Zaslav has been pretty clear and, and John Malone about wanting CNN to get back to more like reporting versus hair on fire, partisan outrage all the time. Um, there could be hosts, you know, who might not get renewed. Oh, absolutely. He might be fired from CNN and, and therefore if there was going to be a competition for real estate with all of the CNN plus talent moving back to CNN, you know, there might be shows opening up. I mean, I think Cuomo's show is a perfect example of all of this. This was a sort of like opinion driven primetime show that hour needs a host at some point, you know, um, it's presumably a CNN plus person could, could slot in there. No, absolutely. And what's interesting going into this is usually when we think about the openings in cable news and who's going to get what, We have become so accustomed for the last 10 years, and especially during the Trump era, to being like, well, who is the sort of most 
outspoken, maybe controversial person who can, you know, get the network, uh, you know, an extra tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people in ratings. And I think what's going to be interesting about the the Licht regime is that's not the calculus for them. The calculus, like as David Zaslav has said to CNN staff, it's not about turning CNN into a profit center for us, although I'm sure they will enjoy the money and they need the money, but it's an integrity play. And so you're going to see a lot of investments in a much more sort of old school style of television journalism that is much more akin to what CNN International is or what we associated with CNN 15 years ago. Is anyone going to watch that other than like the opening week of a Ukraine invasion or, or the, the week surrounding a presidential election? I don't know. But according to David Zaslav, at least, as long as the integrity of the journalism is there, they don't really care about that. Removing the scandal around why he left CNN, given the CNN Plus news, given the reorientation of CNN, presumably back to more straight news. What do you think Jeff Zucker's legacy is? Well, it's really mixed, right? Because on the one hand, and we're talking about a legacy here that's like, how how will he be remembered? And then you have to, how should he be remembered? It's going to be mixed because if you remember what CNN was when he took it over, it wasn't doing terribly well in the ratings. It often came in fourth place to HLN, its sister network. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? I mean, it was it was a pretty uneventful thing. And he made it relevant in a different way. And at the same time, he, as we saw from the month following his ouster, he became a really beloved leader among the top tier talent at the network. So that's half of it. The other half of it is obviously, despite the fact that that CNN continued to do global journalism, continued to do news gathering in the traditional sense, continued to have programming on there that was not opinionated and not heavily, you know, super outspoken, controversial things. The network really became known for that, especially during the Trump era. And it became known more for the resistance journalism, the opinionated rants, the Cuomo, Don Lemon handoff stuff, the Cuomo brothers stuff. And that obviously was not seen as a good look for CNN in the eyes of the new ownership. Now, look, how will he be remembered in terms of his efforts to, to launch CNN Plus, which has since had a really disastrous uh, and, and, you know, and sudden decline? I think we can all agree that linear numbers are going down and they're going to hit a floor at about 40 to 50 million viewers. And the linear model of cable television is not a sustainable one. So there has to be a streaming future. And he didn't get there early. He tried in fits and starts. But CNN Plus was at least an idea. And as I've said on this podcast before, and as I've written, it was at least a more interesting idea than just creating a triple A version of what was happening on the linear product. And so I at least found that interesting. Did you need to spend $300 million on it? I don't know, but we'll never know. And until David Zaslav and Chris Licht, I can articulate a different vision for what 24-hour news looks like in the streaming landscape. We really haven't seen a better option, but someone's going to have to figure that out because the linear model for cable news is, is going to die along and, and slow death uh, over the course of these next five to 10 years. Uh, okay. 
<laughs> a bright, on that rosy note. Bright ending. Um, <laughs> all right, Dylan. Thanks, man. Welcome home. We're glad to have you. And we're excited for more of your scoops, honestly. I've, I've missed them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Peter. It's good to be back. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Welcome back, everyone. Now let's take a quick minute to see what's going on with Baratunde Thurston on his beat right now. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Excited about the opportunity to try to explain the inexplicable mess that is Twitter. So in my latest Puck piece, I shared my thoughts not so much on Uncle Elon's bid to control this uncontrollable thing, but rather what has led this company to be able to be acquired by an electric car magnate and rocket man. And I identified a handful of things that I've experienced on Twitter since its near beginning. I I joined Twitter in early 2007. And some of the things that haven't changed for the better include the reliance still on text only. That we've had basically a huge birth of rich media and exponential rise in the processing power of our handheld devices. And Twitter has said, yeah, we're basic SMS still. And there's something underwhelming about that when you consider versus the competition that's been taking off more exponentially than Twitter's growth. It's leaned into the capabilities of these powerful computers in our pockets and into multiple types of senses. And so the reliance on just short text snippets may be a part of why Twitter has failed uh, to keep up with its peers who've succeeded so much more. Another big reason, and This one pains me because uh, it has leaked beyond Twitter, I think. Twitter is a destroyer of context. What Twitter does essentially is deconstruct the essay. We had essays back in the day. We had blog posts. We used to have coherent thoughts. And then Twitter came along and smashed that into literal bits and then pieced it back together in these threads, which is just like bad essays and quote tweetings. You could pick those threads apart and remove them from their context, a second, third, and fourth order derivative away from the original. And that used to be fun. It used to be like, ooh, great one-liner jokes. I experienced this with great joy when I ran digital for The Onion, and we could just tweet our headlines and like be declared the winners of Twitter. But it doesn't work so well anymore when folks have learned to vie for that fleeting high, that empty calorie of virality. And so we just... Um, provoke and we inflame. And Twitter's become this on-demand service for being offended or offending someone else. Twitter's bad at business. I think we all know that. That's part of why they were in this situation. But part of their unique badness at business, I think, is as my friend Nick Bilton wrote in his book, Hatching Twitter, they were leaderless in a way. They didn't have a single purpose for what the tool was to be used for. So they unleashed this tool and the founders had all this infighting going on. And it just wasn't clear what we were supposed to do with this thing, which ceded ground to abusers and trolls and pettiness, which is not how a de facto public square 
should fully operate. Now that the deal is done, you know, I'm very judgmental of what Elon does outside of making sure my Tesla works. I hope that the good product sense he seems to have actually gets applied to this platform. I'm really curious to see what happens by taking it private and and getting it out of the pressure of short-term financial results, though not so relieved that he doesn't have to pay off these loans that he's taken out against Tesla. So we'll see what happens with that. But if Twitter can be more owned by the users and and the people who actually define the experience through a, a more decentralized effort, then I will be patient and eager to see something like that come afoot. And if Elon means by free speech, standing up to dictatorships and repressive regimes around the world, I'm supportive of that. I'm not so in line with the uh, ability for white supremacists and insurrectionists to have free reign once again on the platform after having been somewhat reined in. For more of my thoughts on Twitter, uh, I'm actually doing an Instagram live uh, on at Baratunday later today, today being the 27th of April, uh, 2022. So if you're 10 years in the future, I'm so sorry you missed my IG live, but I'm going to be sharing a live audio reading of my full puck piece about what made Twitter Twitter and also expanding my thoughts on what can make Twitter better now that it's under new ownership and probably new management. So find me 7.30 p.m. Eastern time, August 27th at Baratunde. And I'm sure the Puck account can drive you to it as well. Now that I've said it, I really have to keep that commitment, don't I? Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.